0: Good morning, hope you're doing well today. Uh, a little bit cool outside today, which is a nice relief from the heat spell we've been enduring. Although, I looked on the, ra- I looked on the internet this morning and said it's going to be 81 here today. Is that possible? Okay, all right, we'll see. I guess a lot can change when that cloud, lever, cloud layer uh, disappears. We are in a series on spiritual maturity. Developing spiritual maturity. And again, I'm assuming that um, you're motivated to go on that journey and to head in that direction. And that means, on the one hand, you uh, have to honestly acknowledge you're not there yet, right? You're not there yet. Um, maturity is a process. It is a journey. You're on your way. But, um, and there's no judgment about wherever you are. You get to be where you are. You just don't get to stay there. It's, uh, it's always about moving forward. It's always about listening carefully to his voice. And uh, it's always about um, responding when you hear his voice. And I think most of us know more than we act upon. Would you agree with that? Do you know more than you're actually living out? I think that's the case. And a mature person admits that, humbly acknowledges that, and then says uh, with a sense of urgency, I want to go, Lord, as uh, far and as fast as You will allow me to go, and I'm going to take it full advantage of all the resources You give me. And I hope that this series on Sunday mornings, as well as time uh, spent discussing this, and some small groups are doing that, will uh, will be part of the acceleration of your own spiritual growth and, and maturity. So there are five foundations. At least this series makes that claim, and. This is uh, what uh, has been the result of what I've studied and what I am learning myself as I want to grow. And the foundation of the foundations, the first foundation is, is, oh, it's up on the screen so you know, is intimacy with God. And it's on the bottom, even though we're going in reverse order, because it's foundational. It's underneath. Intimacy with God, relationship with God, spending time with God, uh, sensing a closeness hearing his invitation, being overwhelmed by his grace. If you were here uh, for the very first part of the service, uh, Terence got up and read from Ephesians chapter 1 and how God lavishes us with his love. If you feel lavished upon, if you feel immersed in, if you feel embraced by, you're ready for this journey, this adventure of growing in grace growing in your relationship with god growing into spiritual maturity and then that sets up the second foundation which is integrity personal integrity the development of moral character but you can't do that all by yourself and if you do that simply by trying to follow the rules you probably will become a legalist you'll probably become someone who does a great job performing on the outside what you think is required and yet your heart remains unchanged That's not a good thing. That's not going in the right direction. That's not about developing spiritual maturity. But out of intimacy with God, the time we spend with God, the relationship we are building with God, he begins to do something to rebuild, to recreate our character. And we all need a lot of work. God is at work in us, on us, if we allow him to be. And he will recreate us after the image of his son so that we become more and more like like Christ. And that's about our character. And there ought to be a sense that when you look back, you say, I I can see some growth here. And maybe there's a, a, a friend or someone who knows you well and say, you know what, you are not the same person you were a while ago, and you should be thankful for that. You are becoming a new person who is actually that person that God designed you to be a long time ago. And so this new creation, this new person, this new man, this new woman is what God is doing, and that happens from the inside out, not the outside in. It's not simply by sitting and soaking it up that we get it, not even as we gather in church. It's opening our hearts and asking God to do what only God can do, and that is to reshape our character. It's about integrity, and we've already acknowledged that's a rare and wonderful thing, this integrity. So let me ask, because I did this last week, because I want to make sure that uh, you're following along and you're engaged in this. Uh, has anybody been working on the issue of integrity in your life. We talked about a couple of weeks ago about intimacy with God. How is that coming? How is that developing in your own life? Anybody been thinking about integrity? Anybody has something to share about how you're growing in that experience? We'd love to hear from you. Anybody want to take a chance and tell us where you are on that journey and how God is rebuilding and reestablishing nobody at this moment i could do what terence did he said i could call on you <laughs> yes i think i know that face in the back ali so are you going to answer the question who are you when no one's watching <laughs> that's that's a deep question that that that's an important question to raise am i just performing am i just staying out of trouble or is this who I am? Is this who I'm becoming? A man of God, a woman of God, a person of integrity, a person of, of honesty, a person who can be trusted, a person that people, we talked about, you know, Joseph last week, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, and he was handed responsibility, and those who handed responsibility quickly learned they could give it to him and then walk away and not worry about it, because he would do it, because he was a man of his word and he would follow through. And... Uh, can people do that with you? Can your boss do that? Can your husband or wife, can your good friends do that with you? Can your kids believe that you will follow up? And when you don't or when you forget or when you can't, do you make it up? Do you, do you, do you cover the ground that was lost? It's not enough just to say, well, I forgot, sorry, or I didn't do it, um, couldn't do it. Do you actually go the extra mile to make it happen? That's a person of integrity who tries to recover after you've um, had a bit of a, a lapse um, People of integrity are not perfect people. They are people who admit their faults, quickly own them, talk about them, and whatever they can do to to, to go the the distance, they they will do it, to recover the ground that they have lost. That's a person of integrity. And that level of honesty, that level of candor is so refreshing, it's so disarming, you're afraid you're going to lose the respect of other people, you will actually regain their respect. Which brings us to the third Foundation. You might be surprised to see this up there among this list. Have you thought about emotional health as a dimension of spiritual maturity? I believe you cannot be spiritually mature if you are not emotionally healthy. I want to read a passage from Ephesians chapter 4 that will set this up for us. So you can turn to it or you can read it off the screen, whatever you prefer to do. So Paul's writing to his friends in Ephesus. So I tell you this, beginning in verse 17, and insist on it in the Lord. Okay, strong strong language in case you think he's just offering a polite suggestion. I tell you this, I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. That is one long, ugly string of phrases, of of descriptions. You wince as you read that. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. You heard of him and were taught in him according in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You are taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger... Do not sin while you are still angry. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God therefore as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave up gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Put off the old self. Do you know the old self? If you don't ask your friends, they know the old self. They know your old self. They know about those parts, those places, those dimensions of your life that are not helpful, not conducive to good relationship, not conducive to building trust, all of that. They know that part of you. You know that part of you. I don't think most of us need to be reminded where we are weak, where we have gone wrong, and where it's not working out. I think most of us... If we're going to be honest for a moment, and maybe not yet publicly, but honest ourselves, maybe, um, maybe that's not the issue, that we don't know enough. It's that we haven't yet made the decision to be that person, and to shed that old self, literally to take it off like a coat, to remove it because it's in tatters, because it's corrupted, because it's, it's not pleasing, and to put on a new self. We were talking a moment ago about, about integrity, and uh, Ernie just walked in the door thinking that I might be past that point, and I am past that point. But since you just walked back in the door, he and I were having a discussion about integrity last week, and I don't want to miss the insight here. So you're on. I think he deserves some applause here. And, and, and by the way, we're not applauding Ernie because he did it exactly right, because it took him a while each time to figure it out. We're applauding him because he's openly discussing it with us. And that isn't the easiest thing to do, especially when your wife's in the room and listening to this and has her own version of the story. <laughs> but, uh, and, and you're right, you don't always get a reward when you do the right thing. Sometimes you get punished for doing the right thing. Are you still willing to do the right thing? And you didn't know the outcome, which is why there really is integrity in your stories. Because when you do it and you leave the consequences up to God and you trust him to take care of you, you are now becoming a person of integrity. And you're right, it does begin to take hold. That was worth waiting for. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we went back to that because uh, you're now hearing from one of your peers You know what this is like as you build integrity into your life. Now, what about this emotional component? What about that? putting off the old self. Don't live like the Gentiles live, he said. No, what does that mean? What are they, how do the Gentiles live? There were two major schools of thought in the Gentile world at that time. There were the Epicureans and there were the Stoics, okay? And this whole emotional component was very important to them. The Epicureans said, emotions are natural. Um, the natural is ultimate. Whatever you feel is ultimately what is real that almost rhymes doesn't it whatever you feel is what is real and so give vent to it go for it that's what life is about don't hold back don't don't uh, don't keep it in let it out act it out then there were the stoics who were saying are you kidding me you're going to get into trouble doing that and of course you often would if you simply act out of everything you feel i hope you're i hope you've learned that lesson by now i'm sure you have and i'm sure that um, the Stoics who, who see that kind of excess going on and they say, no, it doesn't pay to express yourself in that kind of free-form way. You need to suppress that and you need to stay within certain very severe limits. So you have two choices if you're part of the Gentile world. You can give vent to it and just go all out after it and you can follow whatever feelings, whatever greed, whatever lust, whatever anger, whatever fears and just, and just let it come because that's your right, and that's who you are, and that's ultimately what life's about, and that's the definition of human. Or the Stoics who said, No, no, you've got to be smart about this. You've got to keep everything under control, and you've got to live putting on a brave face no matter what you feel. Don't let anybody really see what you feel, and don't let, don't let anybody for sure ever know that you're afraid or that you're weak or that you have needs. Those are your two choices. That's the old self, those are the options. Those are not great options. Is that all there is? Is that the only option? And where does this come from? Well, if you look at the way, if you, if you look at the heart of the Gentile, you'll begin to discover this. You'll begin to discover that the heart is hardened. That's the first thing that Paul talks about. There's a hardening of the heart. What does that mean? You close your heart off, and you encase it because you have to protect your heart because all you have is your heart, and everything else is a threat out there. And so you keep the walls up, and you keep yourself strong. So you have a hardened heart. The Gentiles live separated from the life of God. You can't live separated from life. I mean, that's, that's, that's a contradiction. But the source of life is God. And the Gentiles, these pagans who are not paying any attention to the revelation of God anywhere whether in nature or in his word or in the person of christ at this point in time and of course he's writing to many who were in this very place so they understand what he's talking about this is where they came from they were separated from the life of god and so you have no power to do the right thing you have no power to control what feels so strong inside of you you have no power to do anything other than what is humanly within your your range the futility of your thinking, so that—I'm sorry—the darkened understanding is the next—the uh, the next expression he uses. Um, I don't really understand what's going out there, going on out there in the world. I don't know anything about God's purpose, so my understanding is limited. The futility of my thinking as a Gentile means I'm trying to figure all of this out, and everything I come up with is is, is a plan that falls apart. Why doesn't life work? And. Uh, and then I end up in a very, very sad place called profound insensitivity. I, I really can't afford to be sensitive to what's going on around me or what's happening in you because I'm just trying to take care of myself. Survival, you know, is is my issue. So that's the condition of the quote-unquote Gentiles who are living apart from God. Um, it's a description that I think could apply to... Many of us living in this world, in in our time, that those things happen to us, and because of that, there is a kind of emotional uh, uh, liability that 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 takes place. So, I either give full vent to my emotions, or I completely rein them in and keep them under control, and even deny that I have them. The result is, I was in a class one time on a university campus. And uh, we were doing this kind of emotional inventory. And, of course, you know that uh, your emotional state is influenced very heavily by your upbringing, by your family of origin. And so we went through all of these questions, and we were talking about the level of affection we had in our families. We were talking about the level of security we felt in our families and the expectations put upon us. And so we answered these questions. We were encouraged to do all of that, you know, in a very honest way, because it's kind of hard sometimes to talk about our families of origin. And then they divided us up into groups, and we figured out there's a group that is a relatively healthy family background here, where these emotions kind of get started and get expressed or get suppressed, whatever happens to them. And then there's a family system that you might call confused or compromised, and then there's a family system that's pure dysfunction that's full of damaged emotion. And they put us all into these three groups, and because of the blessing of God and nothing that I deserve any credit for. I was in that first group. I have a very healthy family. Not perfectly healthy. We had our issues. But healthy in terms of affection, in terms of security provided, and in terms of reasonable expectations. And uh, out of 42 students, seven of us were in that group. Okay? There were 14 in the confused, compromise group. And the rest... What's the number? Let's see. 14, 7. How many more before you get to 42? Thank you. Okay, we got some smart people here. All right. 21, we're in the damaged, dysfunctional side. There's a sense in which you don't even get to choose the benefit or the advantage you're put into when you're born. You're born into a system that's already broken in some ways. And so we're all in recovery from that. And God's grace has to grab a hold of us and take care of us. And whatever health we're able to rediscover that's given to us, we're going to now share that in a way that gives hope to other people. So we're born into this world. This world that's broken. This world that's unhealthy in many ways. And even if you grow up in a healthy environment, like I did, no credit to me, um, believe it or not, I was capable of doing unhealthy things. I don't really have any excuse. I need a Savior too. All of us, even in the healthy category, need some help here just to get back to the place where God wants us to be so that we can be, in fact, ourselves healthy. So Paul goes on to say, now put on the new self okay, which has a certain moral character, and also a reestablished, established a, a healed emotional experience. Put on the new self, according to the truth that is in Jesus. So what does the Bible say about our emotional condition, besides the fact that it's broken? We all know that. We don't really need to be told that over and over again. We, we know that we're that we're broken in some ways. And if we're given all the advantages, we've, we've still violated our own conscience. What we know is right, we've gone against it. And there's an emotional consequence to that. And so we feel those things. So what do we do with the feelings inside of us? Do we express them without limitation? Do we suppress them or deny them or pretend they're not there? Well, there's a third option, Fortunately. And God, and constantly when you're reading scripture, there's a third option. There's another way. It's the way of Christ. And so our emotions are affirmed. And they're affirmed in this passage. They're affirmed. Whatever you feel is what you feel. There's no moralizing about feelings. What you do with that feeling, where it leads you, is a choice that you are going to make. So you get to feel it. It's affirmed. And then it must be aligned with the will of God. Okay, so we, we're not just left on our own, either express it or deny it. No, you have it. Now, what do you do with it? You align it with God's will. We'll talk about a specific example in a minute. We're going to have a case study. And then finally, you learn to discipline it. You learn to discipline it. Okay? Affirmed, aligned, aligned disciplined and so there's a new life that you're going to live you're made new you become and this is a powerful statement like god you're made in the image of god that image is restored now in christ and because you're putting your faith in him you're saying god okay put back into me this true righteousness that you have in mind for me that's what—that's Paul's term. True righteousness, so I can be in right relationships, and that's true morally, and that's true emotionally. I want to be in right relationships. I want to become more emotionally intelligent. I want you to raise my EQ. Thank you for the IQ. I need an EQ now, which begins with a kind of self-awareness. Um, before I even think about my relationship with you, I have to know who I am, and so I need you to tell me who I am, and I need to tell you—I need you to tell me who I'm becoming and what you want from me, and what you want for me. I'm going to align myself with that. Because the truth is in Jesus. And Jesus presents the perfect picture of a complete human being. He is both God and man. He's fully human, fully God. He gives us a picture of a healthy human being. In fact, it's very interesting, as you consider the person of Jesus and what to do with him. There are some people, if you listen carefully to this, the things he says about himself and his identity... If he wasn't telling the truth, he would be crazy. That he, in fact, has the power to forgive sins. That he, in fact, is the one who connects people with God. Um, Anybody else who says that, who can't back that up, we would write them off, dismiss them as dangerous or crazy. Or both. Or evil. But you look at Jesus, and he says these things, and he makes these claims, and yet he's the picture of mental health. He's able to deal with all these situations and all this conflict around him, and he's able to transcend that. The ability to find peace and poise in the midst of the worst kind of conflict. There he is. And when he's attacked and when he's challenged and when Pilate stands in front of him and says, I can put you to death. Don't you realize I have the power of life or death over you? What kind of emotion would you be feeling? Jesus was at a place of complete confidence. But he didn't have to punch Pilate out. And he didn't have to fall down and, and, and sort of cringe before him. He didn't have to do either one of those things because he knew who he was. He knew that he was the Son of God. He knew that 10,000 angels could be dispatched by God. He didn't have to worry about a thing. He was fulfilling a mission that God gave him to do. And so he could go eyeball to eyeball with a man who seriously outranked him in the Roman Empire. And yet, he ended up obviously being the one who was in charge of the conversation. That happens again and again. It takes great maturity. It takes great emotional stamina to do that. I want that myself. I want that. So, okay, I have these feelings. All right? So they're affirmed. You're feeling angry. You're feeling sad. Okay, that's where you are. No guilt about that. No shame related to that. That's where you are. But feelings aren't very smart. Feelings, your emotions don't think. They just are. And they indicate What's going on? That's why God gives us the ability to, 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 to feel things. They're indicators. They, they're, they're, it's a kind of sensitivity we have. Now, how do we interpret that and what do we do with that? Now we have a new level of responsibility, but we're empowered in our relationship with God to take a hold of this feeling. Okay, I'm feeling sad. Why am I feeling sad? What would God want me to do about the fact that I'm feeling sad right now? I'm feeling afraid right now. I'm feeling ashamed right now. What's the cause of that? And I'm going to submit it back to him there's a great chapter which i want to urge you to read sometime maybe even during this week psalm 56 psalm 56 says this when i am angry i'm going to summarize when i'm angry i'm sorry it's not about anger when i'm afraid see how confused i am about my emotions (laughs) when i am afraid dot 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 i will not be afraid that's essentially the summary of psalm 56 what When I'm afraid, yes, admit you are. Don't deny it, but don't get stuck in it either. When I'm afraid, dot, 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 I will not be afraid. How do you get from there to there? How do you do that? Well, if you read the whole psalm, you realize there's a a key link in there. When I'm afraid, I will trust in God. I will tell God I'm afraid. I will give it to him. I will take this anxiety out of my heart, and I'll say, Lord, I can't do anything about this. I can't fix the situation. I can't recreate the conditions that would take away this. I'm going to give it completely to you because I choose not to live here, and you tell me I don't have to live constantly with anxiety. I'm going to give it to you. I don't know what you're going to do with it. I don't know what you can do with it, but I believe, I trust, it's a leap of faith. I put it in your hands. And then I make a choice not to be afraid. I choose not to act on that fear. I hear it screaming in my ear and I choose to listen to your word as you call me beyond that fear. Does it work? Does that work? Have you tried that? I was once on a plane and uh, though I uh, would uh, pretend that I'm fearless, that I have no fears like the rest of you human beings have, I do have a fear. I have the fear. I have claustrophobia. You know what that is? Don't hem me in. Don't confine me in a tight space. Don't lock me in your trunk. I wouldn't like that. So we get in the plane. We're about to take off. We've uh, closed the door, which is always a little moment for me. Okay. And the pilot comes over the intercom and he says, "Oh, we've just heard that there's weather in Chicago." And uh, we can't go anywhere, and so we're going to sit right here on the tarmac, zipped up tight for the next hour. Why did he have to say it like that? I had an involuntary reaction. I had no control over that. It wasn't my fault. It's not a sin. I felt extreme anxiety, even panic at that moment. And so I unbuckled my seatbelt, and I stood up. Like, where's he going? Zipped up tight for the next hour. I had this extreme feeling, it was it was physiological as well as emotional, and I stood up and I did the only thing I knew how to do is when I stood up. I quietly, fortunately, not loudly, but sometimes you do it loudly, but I quietly cried out, I said, God help me. I I, I can't do this. God help me. So I got up and I, in violation of the rules They don't want you to get up. I got up, I walked to the back, and there's a uh, flight attendant back there, you know, doing whatever she's doing. Totally unaware of my state, and I'm not going to tell her at that moment. And I started talking to her. Okay? And my heart's beating fast, and I'm ashamed of that, though I shouldn't be, because I have no control over it, and human beings are afraid for whatever reasons, whatever set you up for it, whatever your background is, whatever your conditioning, whatever your DNA, you don't have a control over that. It's often involuntary. I stood up. I cried out. I didn't immediately get an answer that I knew of, but I walked to the back. We started talking. Within a couple of minutes, she told me about the fact that she was going to get married, but she had some questions about this guy and whether this was a great idea. And so we had a conversation that went for about an hour. So here's an amazing thing. This was like a double answer to prayer. So I forgot all about being afraid that I'm in this flying coffin. (laughs) Because I was engaged in this conversation, which is one of the things I love to do more than anything else. And she is getting some benefit from this conversation from this man who's a maniac who's completely out of control in terms of his fears, but is now somehow channeled into a place where God wanted me to be. So even when I'm weak, God can use me. Even when I'm a fearful, pathetic human being, God can strengthen me. And all of a sudden, at the very end of this conversation, we weren't quite done. I hear the captain saying, all right, well, make sure you're back in your seats and your seatbelts are on because you're ready to take off. And my reaction was, darn, I'm not done talking to this lady yet. The very thing I had hoped for at a human level, I didn't care about it anymore. I didn't need it anymore because God showed up. When I'm afraid, I will trust in God. I won't be afraid. I mean, literally, that happens to me every time I take God's word seriously and dive into that experience with God, which takes me out on a place that's very unknown. I don't like to be emotionally out of control. I like to have things under control. Don't you? I've got some issues that come out of my background, out of my childhood, even that healthy place that I've had to deal with, I've had to face. I've had to name them in front of God. I've learned to name them in front of other people. And that's extremely helpful and healthy for me when I do that. And I'm still learning how to do that. And my wife can fill in any other information you'd like to have about me and my, my growth towards, toward emotional Health, so that I can be spiritually mature. We need a whole reorientation toward this new person that God is calling us to be in Christ. A a new orientation to this new identity as this new man in my case, this new man, this new woman in your case. I need a healing constantly at a very deep level. I need healing for things that happen along the way that hurt me. And it may have been something I did and I still need healing from it or something you did to me and I need healing from that. This morning, I had to get up early, take some time out for my sermon prep and all the ways I get ready for Sunday morning and I had to go give a kid a ride. It's a kid that I've been really relating to for a long time. He's a kid with a lot of needs and he he kind of found himself, you know, he's out there and he doesn't have a ride to work and Bart doesn't run that early so I had to go out there and, and take him. And uh, I drop him off, which is, you know, a little bit of a, you know, sacrifice for me to take that time out. And I'm kind of thinking about that. And I'm saying, okay, Lord, don't let me get into that sort of angry place at him and self-pity. And you don't want to go there. I feel it. Now, Lord, you take it and take it away from me. So I dropped him off. I felt good. Got him there on time to his work. I get a call five minutes later from him. Did I leave my wallet in your car? Okay, now this kid is so irresponsible. And I just, get, I just get, you know, and I said, you're killing me, I said on the phone. He's not killing me. That's an exaggeration. He's not killing me. He didn't leave it in my car, by the way. We don't even know where it is. He can't get home on BART like he's supposed to because he has no money. i got to go pick him up at 4 o'clock this afternoon and take him back home. But I have a choice to live out of a new identity. Now, now, that doesn't mean that I roll over and let him do to me and, and exploit me whatever he wants, because that ultimately isn't good for him. Emotionally, I want to dis- I end it with him. I, I, I really do, emotionally. I've, do- I've felt that way for a long time. God has called me to engage with him. All right. So what I need to do is take this emotion of frustration, deep frustration and indignation, You know, because what I'm thinking is, you know, you idiot. That's what I'm thinking. That's not Christ-like. He doesn't look at me and say that, you idiot. Does he have a right to? Yes, often. He says, you are my beloved son. What you have done is wrong and irresponsible. Pick him up at 4 o'clock this afternoon, and let's talk through... How he can learn to, because part of his problem is he's always talking. He's talking, he's talking, he's talking. He's not paying attention to what he should be doing. But if you knew where he came from, he came from the most damaged environment possible. And I need to see him now with the eyes of Christ. I do. I need to forgive him. I need to help him. Not according to what he demands of me, but according to what God is telling me to do. And God is telling me, go pick him up. He needs a ride. Don't give up on him. Everybody else has given up on him. Tell him the truth. Tell him the truth in love. Be the man in this relationship, Doug. Be mature. Be like Christ. What would Christ do? We actually have a choice, not about how we feel, because that just comes at us and just takes over us, and is caused by a lot of other factors. It's involuntary. You have a choice ultimately to cry out for help when you're overwhelmed or when you're undone or when the temptation is too strong. Cry out for help. And not only does God himself hear you, he promises he hears you, but God will provide in strange and mysterious and wonderful and miraculous ways a way back to that place that is healthy on the road to maturity Yes, morally, but even emotionally, this healing, this growth, this perspective begins to happen. What's going on emotionally in you? I think you need to know. I hope there's somebody in your life you can talk about that. What is it indicating? Look at this, finally, this, this, this um, case study that Paul gives us here about anger. Be angry. I like that command. Be angry, he says, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't take it to bed with you. And then later on, he says, all this bitterness and rage and anger, get rid of it. What about anger? It sounds like a sin. It sounds like a negative emotion. Anger is actually a gift from God. You know that? Anger is a gift from God. People who cannot get angry are emotionally disabled. You can't get angry no matter what anybody does to you, no matter what happens to you, no matter how badly you're violated, you're emotionally disabled. So be angry. Anger is the sentinel that guards the border of your dignity. Somebody crosses that, somebody violates that, somebody abuses you. Anger should rise up. There's such a thing as a righteous anger. Our anger is seldom that righteous because then it converts into something else. Because anger is not meant to last. It's like the car alarm that goes off. If it goes off for 10 seconds, it does its job. If it goes off all night, not good. Some of us have taken that anger and we've swallowed it, and now we have a gut load of that anger. Either we express it and we become homicidal, or we suppress it and we get an ulcer and high blood pressure. Are those your two options? How about owning it? How about saying... You know, I'm really angry right now, and here's why I'm angry. I might have to figure that out. And anger is to energize us to do something about it, whether it's to guard the border, whether it's to take action, whether it's to cry out for help. It's meant to do that. I was uh, a volunteer at the local hospital where they have a recovery program for uh, alcoholics and addicts. I took a class on uh, drug addiction because I wanted to learn more about it. I was pastoring in Walnut Creek. And uh, once I got there, the head chaplain said, "Uh, would you mind leading some sessions? I think you'd be good at that for these uh, people in recovery. I said, okay, um, I'll do it for a while. So um, twice a month for nine years, I did that. I learned so much from it. I gained so much from these people. And I'm so impressed and so much admire the whole recovery process. And one day we're sitting in a circle. And we're talking about forgiveness, which ultimately is what we are called to do with our anger, with our upset, with the hurt we have that has been caused by other people. We have this powerful tool called forgiveness. And I'm sitting there in the circle, and we're having this discussion, and I'm kind of laying it all out there. And there's a guy sitting right across from me, a young man, a strong young man from the waist up. He is strong. He's a bodybuilder. He's got long hair. He looks like Samson. From the waist down, there's not much. He's sitting in a wheelchair. doesn't work from the waist down. And as I'm talking about this, I can see him, his face moving from indifference, ultimately into a glare, ultimately into if he could, he would get out of that seat and he would charge me and he would assault me. He was so upset with what I was saying about the need to forgive. And finally, I stopped and I said, I don't think you believe this. And he he said, I think it's a load of whatever. I said, tell me your story. What are you struggling with? And his story is this. He was uh, in a drug deal. He was one of the bad guys in a drug deal. And uh, he got shot. And uh, the bullet pierced his spine. And it put him in this chair. And uh, the other guy who, who shot him, is in prison, but he's getting out in a couple of months. And he goes on to tell me, he goes on to tell all of us in the room, he said, I am planning to be there when he gets out, and I'm going to take his life. I'm going to get my revenge. And you're telling me I've got to forgive him? Are you really telling me I have to forgive him? Because this anger is just burning in him. Just burning in him. Does he have a right to it? Yes. Ultimately, it will be turned against him and it will end his life. He said, Are you tell me I have to forgive him? I said, no, you don't have to forgive him. You don't have to do anything. You can keep this anger inside you, and you can do what you're planning to do. But let me tell you something. This man took your legs. You had no choice. You couldn't do anything about that. You were at the wrong place at the wrong time. He took your legs. Don't let him take your whole life. Don't let him take the rest of you. Because when you shoot him, you will have about 60 seconds of glee, of excitement of of perverse joy because you will get your revenge. That's always short-lived. What will happen then, they will come and they will take you and they'll put you in handcuffs and they'll put you in a cell where you can't move and your life's over. Forgiveness ultimately is a favor you do yourself, you do for yourself. That's a humanistic approach and it's true. Forgiveness does detox you. It's a spiritual detox. You've got to do it. You've got to get that poison out of you so it doesn't keep recycling. But Paul goes to a deeper level. He says, You do this because God has forgiven you. God in Christ has forgiven you. And that's how you learn about forgiveness. It's done to you. And now you extend it. It's a leap of faith. It's crazy. You put it back in God's hands. You let Him be the judge. You let Him sort all this out so you can be free. So you can be free. So you can be healed. So this wound that was a terrible wound can close up. And because of the way God made the human body, the wound will close up. Yes, ultimately you will have a scar. Do you know that it's actually stronger where that scar is than it was before? God can actually turn your weakness into strength. He can take this horrible experience and show you so much and teach you so much from it that you can actually be a blessing to other people. But if you pick open the scab every day, and if you keep opening that wound, it will be the worst wound possible. It will fester constantly. And some of us are living like that. And it's a horrible way to live. It's not living. You're separated from the life that God has for you. You are. This is what God wants. This kind of maturity, this kind of emotional health, it's within your reach, whether you come from a healthy or a very, very unhealthy background. You can make this choice. God has taken the initiative. You can take this emotion, the jumble of emotion you have, and you can give it to him. You can give it to him. He can handle it. He can take it. If you're mad at him, tell him. David does in the Psalms. We have permission to pour it out. Don't hold anything back. And then let him show you what you're supposed to do with it and how he can turn it into something actually righteous and healing and redemptive and ultimately a blessing to other people.